This is A New Angle, a show about cool people doing awesome things in and around Montana. I'm your host, Justin Angle. This show is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in. Today is our February edition of Incentives and Instincts, a recurring series in which I speak with economist and friend Bryce Ward about some of the broader issues facing our society. Bryce, how are you today? It's February. It's very cold and icy, and I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> ready for uh, the ice to thaw and some green to pop through the snow, but you, I know that I've got a ways to wait for that. Well, it is time to talk about COVID again, which feels like an odd thing to say. I mean, we seem like we talk about it all the dang time on this podcast, but we're perhaps now at a point where a transition to a more normal coexistence with the disease feels possible. Some say that's long overdue. Some say we're not there yet. Regardless of where you stand on that, the question of how we should treat the people around us as we transition into that new normal has many interesting layers and ripples. To dig into this, we're joined today by University of Montana philosophy professor Mark Hansen. Mark's particular expertise is medical ethics, and hopefully he can help guide us to something useful here. Mark, thanks for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. So let's start out with your potted bio. How did you get interested in philosophy and ethics, medical ethics in particular? I suppose it starts out with the fact that I was born the uh, son of a Lutheran minister. So I grew up, grew up listening to somebody, parents who were very interested in big questions uh, all the time. But yeah, I um, just became interested in ethics through a course in college. And, and I was always interested in big picture questions. And so ended up pursuing it in graduate school. And um, luckily had a professor there who, at the University of Virginia, who was a leading medical ethicist uh, and was on Bill Clinton's uh, com President's Commission and wrote a textbook. So I got into the issues and then was hired by the Hastings Center, which is a medical ethics think tank in New York, and just had a great opportunity to be able to explore those questions with a lot of really smart people. So it just took off from there. Awesome. So we're excited to have you with us today. Let's maybe start with a broad question. How are you thinking about the challenge our society is facing right now? Well, taking a big picture view of it, I think about this COVID challenge in just light of the broader cultural challenges that we face. Mm -hmm. This issue, like so many other issues, is being mapped onto dimensions of culture wars and political agendas. So it's unfortunately all too easy to place it into those kind of dynamics and there are people who are all too willing to do so and what that does is uses a cause which seems like should be an occasion for heightened solidarity it's a common enemy that we all face but instead it's really become a place where it's being used for increasing polarization yeah bryce that makes me think of your work as an economist like when uh, an economic question or a question where there are sort of uh, empirical economic models that you can draw wisdom from, how do you cope with that when a culture war issue or a culture war layer gets gets added into the mix? The, f the core issue we've mapped the culture war onto is a virus. That means that my actions and behaviors, they affect others. And so while there's various mitigation and all sorts of masks and ventilation, all that kind of stuff, at the end of the day, COVID is fundamentally my choice affects others, right? So in economics terms, we call that an externality, mm -hmm. right? Or a spillover. 
And so the issue becomes, what spillovers am I culpable for? Because, you know, we can't live in a world where I, my, 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 my actions have no effect on other people. That's not the world that we have. The question is, is where do we draw the line for what are we, what are we culpable for, mm-hmm. right? Where is it that we, you know, okay, this is something that's sufficiently bad that it affects others that we have to do it. So if you go back to 2020, no vaccines, don't really understand the virus, the culpability seems high, right? Because we know lots of people are getting COVID and we know that the death rate of COVID is much higher than, you know, other forms of respiratory illness. Now with vaccines and boosters, you know, people who are vaxxed and boosted, the risk really is pretty low. And so the responsibility of others towards people who are vaxxed and boosted seems pretty limited, you know, and kids are also not at a great deal of risk. And so it seems like we're back towards a level of respiratory illness that we already kind of had decided, maybe we were wrong, Mm -hmm. but we had kind of decided that there's a gray area of like, if I have the flu or a cold, what am I culpable for towards others? And COVID is hopefully moving towards that, but there's still, you know, there's still impact on hospitals because we do have a large you know, in the United States, we have a much larger unvaccinated population. Uh, we're seeing much larger adverse response to the Omicron wave as a result. And so the question really is for me is, all right, well, where are we? And, you know, I think this is the question that's motivating the podcast, which is what are the conditions under which we just file COVID under other respiratory illnesses? And then once we do that, given COVID and given what we've learned about respiratory illness in the past year, do we rethink our responsibility towards others when we have respiratory illness or when there's a spike in respiratory illness going around. So those to me are like the, that's kind of the framework that I'm working from. These are dynamics that we've faced throughout history. And it's easy to get myopic thinking about it in the COVID context, but you know, these dynamics play out with driving, with so many other things we do. We, our actions um, create risks for others. As a philosopher, how, how do you kind of reckon with those just pieces of how all of us have to live our lives. I guess I would caution about moving too quickly to this place where our risk level is akin to the flu. I think we still have to, we still have a few things to learn about this pandemic. It seems to be throwing curveballs at us uh, unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. You're right to point to the fact that our sort of social contract, you might say, our agreement around risk is continually being renegotiated. And so yeah, going to class when you have a cold, people would do that or go to work. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's been acceptable for a long time. And it was almost a badge of honor in certain cultures, too. <laughs> yeah, oh, exactly. You right. have to endure. And we, Michael Jordan's flu game, right? Like that's <laughs> exactly. We hold that up as heroism. Yeah, how we think about that, we do have to just really take a look at what are the potentials for inflicting harm on others. And it is negotiated. You can, you can drive 25 miles an hour through my neighborhood, and you may or may not hit a little kid on the way to school, mm-hmm. but you can't drive 100 miles an hour through that neighborhood. That's a lot of what, the way our legislation works, right? It's helping to sort of mitigate and, and risk in ways that also allow that balance of freedom. And so risk versus freedom, the potential for harms versus the being able to do what we'd like to do, that's just an ongoing question that gets negotiated. We've essentially settled on the idea that you know, why not to get the flu vaccine if you need a vaccine for, you know, to protect yourself. But 
Yeah, the flu also kills people. So, you know, we recognize there's a certain level of mortality with that, but we seem to have accepted that. This is an opportunity with a new virus to say, okay, is that kind of where we have found the balance between the greater social goods and values of being able to assemble and, you know, in large groups and enjoy all the things that we do together as a collective versus the, the risk of mortality that we are accepting for ourselves as well as imposing on others. Mm -hmm. So I think you sort of start in some ways with, with precedent and say, okay, is the, is the level of risk we've assumed with the flu, are people generally okay with that? You do have to build a kind of morality of consent. And you can start with precedent and you can look at it and you can say, okay, well, let's revisit the flu. You know, maybe that wasn't quite the standard that we want, but it seems to me that you can look at where we've been and, and say, okay, this is a balance that most people seem to be able to live with in terms of the trade-offs of risk versus benefit. And so within something like the flu, some similar dynamics exist. Like within COVID, each person has a little bit different level of risk based on a lot of different factors, age, pre-existing conditions, and then some personal choices that seem available to every individual, almost vaccinations, for example. Not everybody can get the vaccine. There, there are medically imperative reasons why somebody would not or could not. But for the vast majority of the population, that is an option. Yet a lot of folks are, are foregoing that option. How do you think about these different groups of folks that, that have different risk and the, the level of risk uh, that those groups experience is sort of determined in some ways by the, the efforts of another group? Yeah, well, I, I think it's great to point out that there are lots of reasons why people are unvaccinated. Yeah. And, it, and so there are those who are unintentionally unvaccinated. They don't have access thinking beyond just globally. That's important to keep in mind because we're all in this together, not just as a country, but as a world. And then there are those for, you know, for whom they can't take the vaccine for a lot of reasons. So yeah, medical reasons, but also those who are choosing not to because of they're trapped in a different algorithm. Yeah, you could say that, right? <laughs> well, but yeah, trapped uh, in a different... That's Aziz that's Ansari. Yeah. His latest special. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a place where they've been subject to a certain kind of, I think what many would say, misinformation about uh, or political manipulation about, you know, about the vaccine and about the virus. It becomes mapped into their beliefs and their particular worldview, and it's really hard to move people off of that. And again, there's, I don't think there's any perfect formula, you know, where you can just say, well, okay, the number of immunocompromised people or people who can't get the vaccine is at a certain percentage level and it's really low, so let's just throw everything off, sure. right? You'd like to be able to protect everybody all the time. In terms of those who really are, from the perspective of the vaccinated, are mistaken or, you know, have false views about vaccines, I think we really have to just speak about this in ways that again, sort of stick to what we know to be true or what we, you know, certainly most people believe to be true about this in, and in ways that avoid polarization mm. because of the, the way in which this virus has been mapped into the, into, I think, culture wars and partisanship makes it imperative that we speak about it and address it in ways that do not heighten that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you've seen some of the recent New York Times reporting. David Leonhardt has some interesting polling data that he's reported suggesting that your attitude towards towards COVID and COVID risk in particular is strongly tied to your political identity. It's, it's more strongly tied to your political identity than it is to the actual uh, science we know about the disease risk. So if you're liberal, you tend to overestimate COVID risk in general. 
if you're a conservative, you tend to underestimate it. You know, when those dynamics exist, how would you advise crafting arguments in a conversation to find common ground? So the only way that we can get to a level where ideally we're making the optimal choice, right, given the information available, is we've got to pose the con- – how do we pose a conversation? How do we engage in that conversation in a way that gets people to stop making a mistake – from both an individual, but more importantly, from a social perspective, right? This matters because to the extent that we have a less vaccinated society in the United States than, say, Denmark, well, that means that we have more burden of disease, right? Yeah. And that burden of disease, yeah, it's disproportionately concentrated amongst a set of people who are all collectively making a choice to accept that risk, but it's not entirely concentrated there. So we need to have a conversation that gets us to, quote, the optimal level of disease given the cost of fighting the disease. You know, I mean, this is the problem with with culture war and, you know, uh, intense partisanship is, is this kind of reasoning from antagonism, right? Which is I disagree. Like you're the person I, I disagree with. So you can't tell me anything because you're just an idiot. I have I have inferred from every other culture war fight that we've had that I don't like what you have to say. So therefore, whatever you say on this one, you're just an idiot, so I don't have to listen to you. How do you have a conversation when everybody thinks that each other is an idiot in a way that actually gets information across? Because we do have information. People who are vaxxed and boosted are very unlikely to have severe illness. Right? That's information, right? That's real. But it doesn't seem like that's penetrating into the larger consciousness. And then ideally, once you have that information in a rational world, oh, I have the information, I update my beliefs, and I go and make choices based on it. That's the model that, you know, crazy, you know, hyper-rational economic-brained people like me have <laughs> in our brains. Uh, and then we go out into the real world and are woefully uh, disappointed. So Yeah, information just sometimes doesn't do the job, right? So how do we, yeah, how do we bridge that gap, Mark? Experience, I think, shows all of us that this is often not about information. And that we've got what can be so frustrating because we're like, you know, look at the facts, look at the facts. And I just know anecdotally of people who talk with folks uh, sort of across the, the partisan divide and say, here are the facts. And it either makes no difference or they deny the facts because it's ultimately about perhaps the communities or the ident- that they want to identify with, mm-hmm. right? It becomes such a creed that you can't belong to this community that or political party or whatever the entity is, and and believe in the F, you know the efficacy of vaccines or believe in you know human caused climate change or this kind of code of or creed of, of of convictions that goes with these groups. So how do you address it when facts don't make a difference? A lot of people point to just the need to build relationships. Essentially, I think on an individual level, and then I think that also on a social level to the extent possible, that um, you know you have to talk to each other in ways that aren't, you know, accusatory, you know, length that or that or that really allow for the idea of blame. Something like COVID maps into the culture war so easily because you put it in the of the framework of being able to blame another person mm. um, for their actions. And I don't think we should, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that we completely alleviate culpability or say that you're not responsible for your own convictions, but I think we have to look that there's a variety of reasons why people believe what they believe. And a lot of times it's really about just wanting to 
uh, find themselves, you know, in connection with a group of people who, you know, kind of pull them in and this is what, this is who we are, this is what we believe. So I think whatever it takes to try to mitigate those boundaries and, you know, not come at it from a sort of self-righteous, you know, perspective. I think um, Jonathan Haidt, um, who's written called a book called The Righteous Mind, said mm-hmm. we got to get outside the moral matrix, right, that we're in. The liberals with their stress on care and justice and, and, and conservatives with sort of other stresses on loyalty and purity, authority, and so on. He really says, unless we can learn to step in and speak the languages of, the other, of others and how they put things together and talk about those, about those concepts, then, you know, we're going to be lost. We'll be back to my conversation with Bryce Ward and Mark Hansen after this short break. A New Angle is supported by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and UM's College of Business. Access to capital, broadband, and education are three ingredients any community needs for success. Hey folks, this episode of A New Angle is brought to you by Alps, the largest direct writer of lawyers' malpractice insurance, based right here in Missoula, Montana. Not only does Alps provide outstanding insurance products and risk management resources, They also pride themselves on making the insurance process as easy as possible for their busy policyholders. Beyond that, Alps was named a 2021 Best Place to Work in Montana. So if you value creativity and innovation and want to work in a supportive and nurturing culture, check out career options at Alps. They want to hire Montana's best. To learn more, Visit www.alpsinsurance.com. That's A-L-P-S insurance.com. Hi, I'm Nora Sachs. I'm the host and reporter of Richest Hill, a podcast from Montana Public Radio, and you're listening to A New Angle. Welcome back to A New Angle. I'm speaking with Bryce Ward and Mark Hansen about how we should treat one another during this phase of the pandemic. So that makes me harken back to... You know, the, the onset of COVID when there was talk about flattening the curve, right? And, and, and Bryce, you mentioned this before, much less was known about this disease. We didn't have vaccines. We didn't have therapeutics. We didn't have any of the, a lot of the mitigation measures that we have now. So it was a little bit of a simpler world, a scarier world in some ways, but simpler. At that time, it was kind of a classic collective action problem. You know, social distance, wear a mask, don't do things that could put you at risk of getting an injury or other illness that would put additional strain on the medical resources available. You know, broadly, like, what do we know about collective action problems in the sense of how to get people more aware that the problem is a collective action problem and then how to kind of buy into the fact that by acting to solve that problem, they help themselves, but they also help others too. Collective action problems are, are, are very difficult. And I think there is sort of a place for that doing what you can in terms of on all levels, individual up through the political, to, uh, to try to you know, use speech responsibly and, and speak in ways that um, recognize you know, how complex these, these issues can be for folks. That said, I think there's also a place for legislation policy. There's a, there's a real, you know, I think, case to be made that it is through policy, it is through regulation, 
that one can also change attitudes and change behavior, certainly. Mm -hmm. But you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, you know controversy about things like mandates for you know for businesses of certain sizes and in certain institutions and healthcare and so on. And policy, you know, has the problem of of being a blunt instrument. It can kind of run roughshod over these some of these complexities of the disease. But on the other hand, it also tends to help, you know, to a certain extent, shape a certain sol social solidarity. You know, this is what we do. This is as a society, we've decided that, like it or not, wearing masks is the way that we're going to protect each other. And just like you can't drink and drive or drive 100 miles an hour in my neighborhood, you're going to have to wear a mask. Sorry. Mm -hmm. And so this is, you know, this is who we are. We can vote on it. We can talk about it. You can protest it. But I think uh, it can actually change behaviors and change attitudes by, by resetting where our risk level is. What are your thoughts as an economist on collective action problems, Bryce? You have two, two options. Government has to come in and say, we're not getting this to the right level, and therefore, you know, we have to act, right? So, you know, a lot of times when I talk about regulation, I talk about jerk taxes, right? You know, and essentially it's the idea is that, you know, a jerk is somebody who doesn't take into account the effect of their choices on everybody else and they push those costs onto other people. And if there's too many of them, then we, you know, spoil the commons or we, you know, spread too much disease or whatever it is, right? So the government has to come in and stop. But the better alternative is if we just don't have jerks, right? And that's the other, and that's the engage, right? That's the, right. you know, how do I talk to people? How do I, how do we have a, an education system and, you know, the collective identity of the group congeal around the appropriate response when it comes to the commons, right? You know, how, you know and that's, you know, a, a lot of our problems right now is the, the, the we've, we've elevated this destructive partisan identity over our collective identity, right? Party over country, or party over community, or party over neighbor, party over family. Over everything. Right? And so we have to figure out how to collectively re-elevate the identities which are more constructive, mm -hmm. family, neighbor, community, Montanan, American, these are our collective identities. And once, if, you know, my, my assumption is, is that once we do that, then we go back to where we want, which is instead of hearing facts and immediately trying to run and say, well, how, those facts are inconvenient for me. Therefore, I must disprove them, right? I'm now just much more open to, oh, those are the facts and let's let the facts lead where they may. Now, obviously, you know, the individualized solution to the commons problem, which people do, right? I mean, this is, Eleanor Ostrom won the Nobel Prize in Economics as a sociologist for basically going out and finding examples of people who were able to solve tragedies of the commons or solve public goods dilemmas or solve these kinds of externality issues without government regulating, mm. right? So they exist, but we have to create the conditions for them to exist. And that can be a lot of work. But to the extent that you're anti-government, you don't like regulation, you don't want the state to have to intervene then you've got to be part of the solution in advocating for, oh, we have to stop allowing for destructive identities. We have to be encouraging constructive unifying identities. And we have to be then following, you know, look, ideally we have perfect facts, right? And we don't always have perfect facts. And so there's always going to be some 
gray area of argument about facts. But as evidence accumulates and my beliefs need to be updated, I have to update them, right? I have to be like, yep, okay. Vaccines appear to be pretty safe and they seem to be very effective. Therefore, yeah, I should be part of the solution of advocating and encouraging people to get vaccines. So then we don't need the mandate. Mark, I saw you try to jump in there a few times. You know, well, I guess one point I would I would add to that would be maybe if you don't want to talk about facts, maybe we should also talk about the moral concepts and frameworks within which each side, if you will, or, or, or different groups are, are framing the issue. Because if you get into those terms, then you are having a conversation at least about a common idea, a common concept. And, you know, I think that's the idea of, for example, if one side wants to frame this as an issue of individual freedom uh, against, you know, state imposition of regulation and so on, or freedom to be able to wear a mask, not wear a mask, and so on, then I think, you know, okay, let's talk about freedom for a minute. Let's look at what, what is your idea of freedom? And the, the concept gets thrown around and it is used as the framework in, especially within the culture wars of sort of anything that people don't like, you need to be able to f- be free to be able to, to do what you want. And so I think having a conversation about what it actually means to be free because people on different sides of the political spectrum understand freedom very differently but if it's something that we say we all value, then let's let's talk about that. Because I think sometimes this expression of freedom, from my perspective, is just misguided. I mean, you want to maximize your own freedom, but to what extent does that restrict the liberties of other people? Mm. And that sort of gets us back into that Here we re- are. renegotiation again of when can a society, the collective, either through the government or through, you know, just social norms, when is it justified in limiting human freedom? Let's go back to that particular question. Usually when it causes, you know, harm to others. Okay, well, let's talk about the level of harm to others or the level of risk. And, and I think, you know, talking about those important key moral aspects, in addition to insistence on the truth and the facts, you know, is a way to help move it along, perhaps. Yeah. It's underlying, underlying this is a values debate, but we're not having a clear values debate. That lack of clarity means that sometimes because they're blinded by culture war identity issues, people are actually arguing in favor of positions that if you broke them down into their value components, they would be like, oh my God, they'd be aghast, yeah. right? Like, oh no, I, no I, don't, I don't support that. Right. Like, well, no, but that's the exact that's analog the, uh, or whatever it is. You know, you fall into that because it's, I'm just marching along, right? You know, I got to support the team. Right, I'm a team player, and this is the team sport that we're engaged in. Unfortunately, it's not a sport; it's you know actual life and death. But this is the problem that we keep coming back to. Yeah, trapped in the algorithm. I think is the phrase of the day. Thanks for sharing that, Bryce. We're out of time, fellas. Mark, this has been tremendous. Uh, like most of these conversations, we open far more doors than we close. But um, any parting shots for the audience? Well, I guess I would just say that. The COVID pandemic is obviously also an opportunity for people not only to try to figure out how to address collective action, but also to uh, you know, address the values, choices that we're making in our own individual lives. And I think you're seeing that in the, in the way that the employment market is going, people quitting their jobs or thinking about work-life balance, but also you know, I think just recognizing and coming face to face with how we think about risk, um, your own perceptions of risk, 
and as well as your mortality. People have faced a lot of pain through this pandemic. And as Tolstoy said in The Death of Ivan Illich, respice finem, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that <laughs> right, but... Sounds good to me. Respect, you know, consider the end. Um, if you wanna, if we wanna think about how we should be sp spending our lives and living our lives together, you know, having mortality in front of us can change and shape our perspective and I hope for the better. Well, that's an appropriate way to close the conversation in many ways. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Thank Bryce. You. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thanks. Been great. Thanks for listening to A New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, a generous gift from University of Montana alums Michelle and Lauren Hansen. A New Angle is presented by First Security Bank, Blackfoot Communications, and the University of Montana College of Business. With additional support from Consolidated Electrical Distributors, Drum Coffee, and Montana Public Radio. AJ Williams is our producer. BTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks made our music. Editing by Nick Mott. And Jeff Meese is our master of all things sound. Thanks a lot, and see you next time.